are listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series. Welcome to the conversation. Hi, everyone. My name is Koliwe Majama. I am going to be your host for this podcast series that's produced by the Center for Human Rights. And the title of the podcast series is Africa Rights Talk. Now we're going to be looking at the topic of access to the internet and internet governance in Africa. And to join us on the podcast this morning, we have two fellows from this year's Media Fellowship Program, Amina Idris and Bulanda Ngoani. I'd like to welcome you both. So I think to start off the conversation, we will begin by looking at the revised Declaration of Principles of Freedom of Expression and Access to Information in Africa, which in revising the African Commission on Human and People's Rights added a new section that's looking at freedom of expression and access to information in Africa. And they added a a section that looks specifically at the internet. And one of the interesting sections or parts in that new uh, section that was added is the emphasis of the role of African governments to ensure that there is universal equitable, affordable, and meaningful access to the internet. So uh, to begin the conversation today, I thought that would have a look at the concept or the aspect of meaningful access to the internet. What does this mean for you, Bulanda? I'll ask you to take that first. Thank you very much, Koliwe. So for me, meaningful access means having an internet connection that enables me to fully utilize the internet and all that it has to offer. So being able to access the internet anytime um, when I want to every day. Also having an internet connection that is reliable and fast. At the same time, Mm -hmm. having access to an appropriate device um, for whatever function that I would like to perform or whatever service that I would um, like to access at that point in time. Also having enough um, enough data to perform various functions um, or access all other services um, and websites without any restriction. So in a nutshell, being able to harness um, the internet's full potential. And for you, Amina, is there anything different from what Bulanda just shared with us in terms of meaningful access? I like what you're saying in terms of, you know, just being able to access the internet without interference. But the issue that you speak about in relation to uh, having access to data is also a more socio-political or even economic, you know, issue in terms of the reality of Africans. So I just want to find out from you, Amina, if this is what you think of meaningful access as well. Um, yeah, to me, meaningful internet connectivity comprises of at least these four features. I think Bolanda mentioned that, but let me just mention that I um, it should consist of a regular internet use, which is a minimum threshold daily internet access, an appropriate device, which is a minimum of a smartphone, then enough data to connect, maybe at home, at workplace, or a place of study, maybe a library, then the connection should be fast, which should be a minimum of a 4G mobile connectivity. So would you say that people who are not in an area with 4G, so our reality in Africa, because of, you know, the geography graphical landscape in terms of investments by service providers, you'll find that some people are still on LTE, some people are still on 3G. Would you say this compromises meaningful access? 
Amina? Yeah, I would say it does because I think the minimum should be a 4G connectivity. So I would say, yes, it compromises their ability to get meaningful connectivity. Bolanda, is there anything you'd like to add before I move on to that? Because I find this very interesting because obviously looking at access to the internet within an African context, you're looking at the realities in terms of, you know, what it is that service providers or governments themselves can provide to the communities. Is there anything you'd like to add? Uh, maybe just to agree with Amina in terms of, you know, anything below 4G shouldn't even be considered as meaningful access. The internet has advanced so much. There are now various services and functions that with anything less than 4G, you, you really don't get a very good experience. So yes, I'd like to agree with Amina on that. Yeah, but one would argue that if you don't know any better in terms of if I'm stuck in rural Kenya and I have access to 3G and I don't know that I can serve access anything better, the utility of the internet for me at that time is adequate. But that's a conversation for another day. So I'll move on to the next question. I just wanted to also find out your feelings or perceptions around the new call for an increase in connectivity in the digitally excluded communities, what they call the license, the community network. So there's this huge call on the continent for the licensing of alternative connectivity for more marginal communities that we were talking about in terms of geographically, but also in terms of viability for the private sector, where, where they feel that they don't actually make much within those constituencies. So what would you say would be the two most prominent regulatory challenges that could face community network in the countries that you are from? So I'm looking at the, the, the regulatory challenges. So in licensing the community network, what do you think is going to be a challenge for African countries? Okay, um, so in terms of regulatory challenges, firstly, okay, I will speak so much from the context of Zambia, considering that is where I'm based. But I'd say in terms of providing Providing uh, frameworks or rather within ICT policies or broadband policies and any other policies that govern ICT. So within that, being able to provide solid frameworks that can then govern community networks. So in how they'll be set up, how they'll be run and managed. So overall governing of community networks. But also I find that the other challenge would be in terms of issues of allocating spectrum uh, for these community networks, I think spectrum has been uh, something that is diminishing and something that is of a challenge in most jurisdictions. Also, if I may add another challenge, um, in terms of policies that would make community networks um, attractive to the private sector players. So like you mentioned earlier, private sector exists for business. So perhaps creating certain policies would be challenging in terms of, you know, how do you create a policy that will make a community network more attractive to a private sector or that will sort of compel them or encourage them to invest in um, a community network. So that is where I see um, the so challenges. When, yeah. So when, when, yeah. when you were talking about spectrum, is this in terms of just transparency around uh, the available spectrum or is it in terms of just proper use of uh, the spectrum? What exactly are you talking about in terms of the spectrum? Okay, so I'm more inclined to the latter. So more in 
in terms of proper use of this spectrum, uh, considering spectrum is something that is constantly diminishing. So being able to properly allocate this either to community networks or to um, you know other uh, services that rely on these networks. So really mm-hmm. just identifying and prioritizing community networks within right. the many private yeah, need to utilize this spectrum. Right, right. And for you, Amina, I think that I would ask you to take uh, maybe looking at, you know, operationally, what do you think that the challenges would be for a community network to operate within an African context and specifically in the country you're from if you do have any uh, community network? Okay, um, I think um, when it comes to the operational challenges, um, we have things like um, harsh business environment because like where I'm currently located in Nigeria, but the environment mm. which I find myself, we find ourselves in a, in a very reserved and naive sort of um, environment where change is very, very... People people tend not to accept change as they come. They want to be in their comfort zone. So the environment tends to be harsh for new businesses when they come in. They have to they have to go a long way to convince this um, community of um, what they are, what, what they want to do in the community and how to accept what they want to do. So I would say harsh business environment. Then there's also the problem of multiple taxation. Uh, you find out that they tax these people um, so much so that they don't even want to because like just like Belanda said privatization work better because only the private um, institutions are willing to do this because they know they're getting money from you but when you multi-tax them you find that that they don't want to work in certain communities and there's also um, vandalism or of infrastructure which they come they make right. they put they put in their infrastructures and before they come in they have to put um, a night watch you have to put a 24-hour watch or a 24-hour guard or else people would vandalize or destroy this infrastructure. Then there's also the disparity between advertised internet speeds versus actual speed obtainable on the networks. You see a network singing 4G, 4G and things like that. But by the time you get them, you find out that the speed is not what they actually advertise. Yeah, no, so I think I'm seeing also a parallel in one of the responses that you have given, uh, which I think um, is also very important for the regulatory aspect, which is the issue of, you know, taxation and probably license fees also for the community networks. But I think also key to what you've just said, Amina, is that one of the main, you know, steps in achieving uh, the community networks might actually be for communities themselves to have a sense of ownership. So maybe we get over uh, all the ba- the barriers that come with, you know, vandalism. But yeah, I think yeah. vandalism is, is very prominent across, um, you know, the states, even for, you know, international, uh, for, for national infrastructure, your electricity and the like. So thank mm-hmm. you both for that. Turning on to issues to do with the gender digital divide, which I think you're aware has often been cited in relation to internet access issues. In your context, what are the characteristics? So if someone says to you, um, there's a gender digital divide, what would you say are the main characteristics of this from your own context? And in terms of just looking at those characteristics, I would like us to look at, you know, 
regulatory bodies and how they can bridge those barriers or bridge that divide uh, across the continent. So let's start with, you know, what it is exactly you see when someone talks about the gender digital divide. So I think it's a known fact that there are more women and girls than men and boys. And I'll be biased on this um, towards women and girls. So in terms of the gender digital divide, you find that in as much as, you know, the female population is more than the male population, You still find that when you look at all the statistics about internet use, access uh, or internet access, um, access to devices, I mean, just, you know, um, access rights within a home setup, for example, to a device, you'll find that our male folk have an upper hand. Even when you look at um, internet penetration rates, for example, you'll find that more males are accessing the internet than females. And in terms of some of the measures that can be put in place, especially from a regulatory uh, point of view, I would say it's small regulation of policies that um, deliberately uh, promote meaningful access for women and girls. So earlier we spoke about what meaningful access is. So having these deliberate policies uh, within our national ICT policies, for example, also making devices more affordable for women and girls and just promoting access rights for women. Also providing um, online safeguards and safety measures so that women are more empowered to control, for example, their online activity and just being able to stay safe online. But also I think another Another feature that we see increasingly coming up these days is online gender-based violence, which manifests in many forms. So there's a lot of cyberbullying, cyberstalking, trolling, revenge porn, and many other vices online that you find sort of discourage women and girls from taking up technology and accessing the internet. So this calls for more also awareness raising on the internet and the potential that it has for women and just dispelling some of these negative notions. One example that I can give is that in some communities, you know, there are these notions where they would say, okay, only a boy should own a phone. So a woman who owns a smartphone or any other phone is a prostitute. So just being able to dispel some of these negative notions. But also I'd like to see more of gender disaggregated data, especially on how women are accessing the internet, how women are using the internet, also their access to devices and so on and so forth. And I think that last point that you mentioned is very important because as much as we get all these quarterly reports from different states, they are not sex disaggregated. I'll turn to you, Amina, is there anything that you'd like to add to that, especially in terms of, you know, the regulatory you know, measures that can be taken in states to address some of these gaps that are there in terms of access to the internet by women and men and boys and girls? Um, this is actually a topic very close to my heart because I work in digital inclusion and um, I have I have tons and tons of stories to tell about uh, gender divide, why we have less girls in digital space compared to the boys. Just like Belanda mentioned, it comes down to the device. Most of our, in our African homes, we find out that we we don't feel the need for a girl to own a digital device because it's like, what is she learning online? What is she going to? It should be a boy thing. So I don't know if we have another time to talk about this, but I would like love to share stories of some of our girls with you. So how do we bridge this digital divide gap? Technology and the internet can be a great enabler for girls, but a lack of opportunities, skills, and a fear of discrimination prevents many from using and creating 
creating digital tools and online content. So I think to achieve gender equality, girls and young women need equal access to technology, digital training, and to be safe online. Just like Belanda mentioned, there are revenge porn, there are gender violence online. So we need to provide a safe space for girls online. Then we can also increase digital literacy. We can provide operational incentives to information and communication technology entities. We can develop relevant and local content in addition to telecommunications infrastructure. Then we can also encourage and establish mm -hmm. cyber clubs for girls. And then the schools, we can start from the schools because the school is the first place where we can make it's um, we can tell we can show these girls what they can do with um, digital technology. Mm -hmm. So I think we can start from the school mm -hmm. and then move on. Yeah. Thank you both. And I see a lot of emphasis around safety, uh, discrimination, which I also think is a more social, uh, you know, just like the socialization where women continue to be seen as lesser beings, but also remain very vulnerable in society. So I think also maybe just emphasizing that maybe it's also time to get uh, community-based organizations to start looking looking at, you know, digital rights or access to the internet for girls from that angle. So thank you both uh, very much. We're getting to the end of the, the set of questions that I have for you, but it would be unbecoming of me not to speak to you around internet shutdowns on the African continent. And what we continue to see is that there's a continuous imposition, whether it's partial, like we've just been witnessing what happened in Nigeria. We are also seeing blanket shutdowns over a long period. But I would be interested to find out from you as media fellows, what you think can be done to change the trend? And by the trend, I mean, there seems to be an attitude by African governments not to firstly hold each other accountable. Secondly, a lot of responses come from the ordinary citizens themselves. And even at regional level, we are not seeing any action. What do you think can be done? I'll start off with you, Amina. Okay, um, I'm just going to say one or two things. Uh, yeah, like you said, um, it's been common knowledge. Presently, we are under lock and key. We can't uh, access Twitter in Nigeria. I think this is not news. So we know what our governments are capable of. The government can restrict access by ordering internet service providers to limit access to their subscribers. Some instances, some commonly used social media sites, just like Twitter. And sometimes a more extreme measures, the authorities can order other service providers to block all internet access. I think to stop this trend, we can use our people power, although in Africa it's very difficult to protest now since the government feels you're working against them if you decide to protest. So my question really, Amina, is at, so looking at African states who convene at regional level. So maybe they're meeting at the African Union level, maybe they're meeting at the African Internet Governance Forum uh, okay. or other regional meetings. What do you think can be emphasized or what steps can be taken, you know, to change this trend? Because I think the concern is that as much as civil society and as much as communities have exercised their people power, maybe both at regional and at national level, I mean, we've been offering solidarity to Nigeria, I mean, issuing statements, calling out and the like. But what do you think can be done together at that level, at the African Union level, at the African 
African Internet Governance Forum, what should we see happening to change this trend? What demands should be made? There should be more policies around internet shutdown. There should be, we should see the power the government has over the over the internet should be minimized as much as possible. And um, there should be there should be repercussions whenever a government shuts down the internet of um, their region. Thank you so much. And uh, Bulanda, from a national level, what do you think can be done? I think at national level, we've been seeing things like civil society organizations taking governments to courts. We've been seeing a lot of protests. Do you think that is enough or do you think there's other things that are being overlooked? So I think the issue of internet shutdowns, a lot, like you mentioned, is being done continent-wide. Some of it is working, some of it isn't. So not many new things, but perhaps just to say that getting government um, to commit to not shutting down the internet, so getting a national government to commit to that by enacting laws and policies that don't facilitate for internet shutdowns. So at the point when your your country is enacting and a certain ICT law as CSOs, what input are we taking um, to these consultations? So really just getting governments to commit, uh, firstly, to not shutting down the internet. Also, um, in terms of businesses, so we know that um, usually an internet shutdown is facilitated through our ISPs who, uh, as we mentioned earlier, exist for business and so they have to comply to national laws. So if we, we have we enact better laws that protect our ISPs and service providers and and empower them to, you know, justly or without fear decline some of these government requests to shut down the internet. So having laws that would at least protect them within that scenario. Also mm-hmm. continuing as CSOs um, to push back um, on all the internet shutdowns that we are seeing um, across the continent through all the advocacy that has been um, going on uh, for the internet, you know, to say the internet is bigger than us. So most times you find that when there's an internet shutdown, it's usually you know freedom of expression or assembly issue because one camp does not want um, the other camp to, to exercise their freedom of speech or to assemble online. Mm-hmm. So really just uh, being able to, especially make our policy makers to understand that, you know, it's beyond just freedom of expression. There are many other services that rely on the internet. So imagine having to miss a very crucial exam that I've studied for for the last four years because, you know, just two camps could not agree. Being able to not file your taxes on time because, you know, the internet was shut down and so on and so forth. So really just being able to, to make a case for that and to just highlight one of the key internet governance principles um, about having an open and free internet. Thank you so much. And I find that really interesting, especially your first point on, you know, getting governments to commit. And I think that worked at some point in Nigeria before your election must have been Nigeria's election. And I can't remember two, three years back, uh, yes. they were proactive demands for government not to shut down and that seemed to actually work. We also had a similar experience in Zimbabwe. At some point, it must have been the 2018 election where, you know, civil society proactively made demands to the minister uh, of ICT. So that seems to work. But thank you both uh, for the responses to that. And so to close the show, I would really like us to speak to, you know, our reality on the African continent of a third wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. We're beginning 
to see that governments are reintroducing stricter measures in terms of, you know, just the travel. We're seeing cut down or limits in the number of people that can convene face to face. And also, you know, just like more social uh, places like the bars, restaurants. And also very key is also the cutting down of uh, the number of people who can operate face to face for essential service, but also the requirement for everybody to start working virtually online. I wanted to find out from you that based on our past experience of the height of the COVID pandemic last year in March, what do you think government and service providers can do to ensure that this wave of the pandemic does not become a further barrier for key populations and also ordinary citizens to access critical information over the internet? So I'll start with you, Amina. For the first um, lockdown, I think the government wasn't really prepared because we there were lots of um, mistakes, ups and downs. So I would encourage um, the government to network, collaborate, share and learn from, from successful practices and mistakes to build better and more effective public services for future pandemics and crises. Um, they can sustain uh, sustain development of responsible, responsive, accountable, and people-focused leadership in public sector institutions. The, um, the COVID-19 the COVID pandemic has shown that during uncertain and huge times, resolve people-focused, calm, credible, trusted leadership is required. So I think... Um, we can, uh, they can also provide financial resources for pandemic and crisis before they happen. Um, information should be readily available at our fingertips on where to get um, preventive measures, where to get, um, like where to get the vaccines, where to get um, 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 proper health care. Uh, yeah, I think. Mm. So the, the reality, though, I like I like what you're raising in terms of, you know, just like uh, public services being more the public service being more uh, efficient and proactive in, in issuing information. But you haven't spoken to the issue of access uh, in terms of access by the citizen. Do you think anything can be done to make sure that that information uh, that is uh, public information, they can afford to access it over the internet. Okay. Uh, Is there anything? Yeah, the, yeah. the government can um, can do jingles on radios and television. They can make um, posters for those who are not um, who are not on the net. They can make um, billboards to pass information and um, we can come down to the local level. We can do door-to-door information um, passing. We can go to people's houses and um, pass this information to them. Mm-hmm. And um, the information should just be readily available. Like, um, actually, where I'm from, we, we listen to the radio very, very well. I think it's the first, um, it's the first line of information. So the government can really make use of um, the radio and stations to play out jingles and pass out information to their community. 
Thank you so much for that, Amina. And for you, Bulanda, in terms of just making information accessible over the internet, especially, what do you think can be done? Uh, Zambia, like many other countries, was caught unaware and very unprepared. So we saw when the COVID restrictions kicked in, people being told, go and work from home, and the learners being told, go and study or learn from home without uh, putting in the appropriate measures and providing the access to uh, e-learning services, for example. So what we would like to see is a bit more effort in terms of policies um, that would, would enable or ease access um, to e-services such as e-learning, e-government, e-health and so on and so forth. So improving upon these services to make them more efficient. Also ensuring that uh, certain institutions like schools, um, hospitals and government offices have the appropriate devices and appropriate connections. Um, but also I would say seeing more effort going towards uh, catering for marginalized groups, people living with disabilities and certain populations with unique needs. We saw a situation where students were told you will now have to rely on e-learning platforms, but you find that you have, you know, within the student population, certain groups that have unique needs and don't have, you know, the specific devices that they would need to connect to the internet. And also, I would say the issue of load shedding. So we have inadequate energy, for example. So how then do you prepare for a third wave of COVID-19 and utilizing online services when you don't have that energy to power your devices. Also more investment in improving digital literacy skills. I think one of the things that we struggled with was that sometimes you find students will say, okay, so we are, we were able to adapt and we know this e-learning platform, but my lecturer, for example, can't use it. Um, so really just improving upon um, digital literacy skills, digital security skills. We saw a lot of online fraud because, you know, having a lot more people online. And in terms of um, service providers, I would say being able to provide zero-rated services to certain um, sites like e-government websites and um, certain e-learning websites. Um, and in a nutshell, mm-hmm. yes, that is it. Thank you so much. That was so useful, Blanda. And um, I think what's also important is that you've also sort of uh, touched on the issues that Amina was speaking to in terms of just like making public information available through uh, zero-rated services. So I'd like to thank you both, Amina and Bulanda, who joined us for this morning's podcast, which is part of the Center for Human Rights Africa Rights Talk series. And today we were focusing on access to information and internet governance in Africa. And I think you could tell that they were speaking from both the Zambian and the Nigerian experience. We looked at, um, you know, what meaningful access means. We also looked at, you know, regulatory aspects in terms of covering or uh, bridging uh, uh, gender digital divide, but we also came down to looking at a contentious issue around internet shutdown and then finally zeroed in by looking at the realities of the COVID-19 pandemic and what both of them feel should be done by governments to make sure that there is a worthwhile experience of the internet throughout the pandemic. So signing out, my name is Koliwe Majama and I am happy that you were able to join us uh, for this edition. And thank you so much, Amina and Bulanda. You're welcome, Koliwe. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks for having us, Koliwe. It was a pleasure. This has been Africa Rights Talk. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore other human rights issues.